Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. The free market is notorious for its contradictions and inequities. Competition tends towards monopoly. Owners accrue capital at the top, but extract it from labor at the bottom. Large enterprises enter, disrupt, and even decimate communities, often leaving workers holding the bag worse off than they were before. It doesn't have to be this way. There are alternative economic systems to capitalism. There are also alternative market arrangements within capitalism, or something like it. One such model sees workers as the owners and beneficiaries of enterprise. So we ask, what's the case for employee-owned businesses? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is John Shell, managing director and partner of Social Capital Partners. Let's start by defining what an employee-owned uh, business is and how one comes about, either from scratch or from an existing enterprise that's converted, uh, because our listeners may not know. Uh, can you walk us through that? Sure. There's all sorts of, of types of employee ownership. Uh, some start from scratch. Some come uh, through uh, you know, transitions to employee ownership from another structure. Uh, you know, worker co-ops is one that, that's quite well understood. Uh, uh, you know, where those are often done from scratch. You know, where where all the employees have a share in the business and and, and then have a say in how the business is run. You have things like stock options, uh, where public companies or or tech startups. Uh, find ways to provide shares uh, uh, to employees, uh, you know, uh, uh, that often vest over time. That's another common structure that people are pretty familiar with. And then there are employee ownership trusts, uh, uh, which I think we'll talk a lot about today. That's often a conversion. So that's when a company decides to sell itself uh, to employees. And then after that, uh, uh, you know, the company is run by this trust on behalf of employees. Uh, and, and that's, you know, a very common structure for employee ownership uh, in the U.S. and the U.K. and in those structures, uh, you know, governance uh, or the companies run like it, like a, like a normal company. So, so the employees don't don't make the decisions uh, uh, um, at the company, um, but the employees um, benefit from the sort of uh, um, you know profit and increase in value uh, of the company. So, those are the main the main ways. And is that what distinguishes it from from a cooperative? The, the fact that it's not. The same sort of democratic model, but rather a, a trust model. Yes, yeah, it's the indirect ownership uh, uh, is is the thing that most distinguishes it from uh, from a worker co op. Right, and and so you mentioned that this is often the product of of a transition of a business selling itself to its employees. Uh, you know, is, is this something that is happening because people are retiring, because people want out, because they're facing bankruptcy? I mean, what are the conditions under which? you find a business would 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 go to an employee-owned model? Well, if, if you're talking about converting through an employee ownership trust, um, uh, like they have in, in the U.S. and the U.K., primarily it's uh, um, sort of medium-sized companies, so call it you know, 25 employees to 500 employees, uh, generally in mature industries, uh, right? So think grocery or construction or, you know, professional services, Generally doing fine, right? So these are not not usually used for for rescues or, or bankruptcy issues. Um, and then the owner is looking for some sort of uh, a succession where uh, they don't have another buyer. And, and I'll, I'll make it a bit more 
real, just with the one that we just worked on, uh, which was the transition of Taylor Guitars. Um, so, you know, Taylor Guitars, which is the largest uh, uh, manufacturer of acoustic guitars in the U.S., is 1,200 employees. Uh, its owners, uh, uh, Bob Taylor and Kurt Listig, uh, you know, didn't have heirs that, that they they that wanted to to take over the company. They really didn't want to sell to a private equity company. They really didn't want to sell to one of their competitors. They they kind of loved the uh, culture that they created since they founded the company, and so they used this uh, um, you know what's called an ESOP in the U.S. this trust model in order to transition their company to their employees. And now their company is 100% owned by their 1,200 employees. No, well, that makes me even more proud to, to own a tailor. You own a tailor? I do. I, you know, back in my grad school days, against type, uh, had a little bit of extra money and decided to, to sink it into a uh, 300 series. And uh, Amazing. And I'm, I'm quite glad I did it. Really, you know what the best thing about it is? You feel like you never need to tune it. It just sort of seems to hold the tune on like anything I've ever played. Well, I, I'm so I'm very pleased to hear that. We should talk more about that. I can spend the whole time talking about Taylor guitars if you want. You know, we could. This this happened the other day. As listeners will find out in our 50th episode, I, uh, I I talked to Beverly McLaughlin, and I spent a good chunk of the time talking to her about thriller novels. Okay. And I had to sort of I had to reef because she's written a couple. And so I had to focus back up. So so don't tempt me because I could I could talk Taylor all day. Incidentally, it's the same one. I don't know if if, if you or anyone listening has watched Parks and Recreation, but Andy, uh, Chris Pratt's character in Parks and Recreation, plays a Taylor when he's playing, huh. and that's the one I own. Not go. literally that one. That that's the model. He's not. You know when when, when it's funny when when Bob Taylor, who's like, and they're all amazing people, but who's an amazing guy, talks about the people who play. Taylor tries. He rarely mentions you, uh, David, um, but 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 he may not know. And, and now I'll I'll let him know. He'll say he'll say it's Taylor Swift, Jason Raz, and David Moskov. Well, and Chris Pratt. And Chris Pratt. You yeah, know, or, it's, or Chris, the, it's you know Chris Pratt's the, the big four. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. The big four. <laughs> and I, it really is an absolute pleasure to play. I and mean, it's one of the most playable uh, guitars I've I've ever had. And I've got a handful. I've got five of them um and it's by far my favorite and with, with apologies to the fender the next one you buy you know all profits will go to workers in mexico and california so uh you'll have to add to your collection uh, I sh- that, that's a good excuse to do that i <laughs> well actually I'm, that's a, that's a good segue into the question of the virtues of employee-owned businesses so i uh, you know i'm thinking of the challenges that we we tend to see in the in the current market system, or the the dominant models in the current market system, wealth inequality, the drive towards monopoly. I mean, what are, what are the virtues of employee owned businesses uh, when we consider the the sort of vices of the market? Yeah, I mean, I mean, so, so wealth inequality is certainly um, you know one, the big one. Um, uh, so you know studies show that um, employee owners in the U.S. have uh, you know are ninety two percent wealthier. Than employees at non-employee-owned companies, uh, so an incredibly powerful generator. And, you know, we we should we should talk about the scale, right? So there are 14 million odd Americans who are who um, have some type of ESOP plan or are involved in some type of ESOP plan uh, at at 6,500 companies. Uh, you know, with an average uh, um, retirement account through their ESOP of, of $100,000. 
U.S. So, so very, very powerful. So there's that, which has certainly been, been incredibly important. And they, they have actually performed really, really well in recessions. Uh, so, you know, they've been studied in the, uh, sort of the dot-com recession, the 2001 recession, the, the, the uh, GFC. And then, you know, even now in COVID, early studies uh, are showing that um, they're much more resilient. And there's good reason for that, right? I, I mean, if you think about, um, you know, uh, uh, you now have the employees aligned to make sure that you get through a crisis, because if you do, the benefits all go to them. Mm-hmm. And generally, uh, if, they owe, if they owe money, they often owe it to the former owner. Uh, and, and the former owner obviously has a very long-term time horizon, very different from, say, if it was owned by a private equity company or, or you know, someone else. So, so much more resilient, um, you know, tend to keep jobs in local communities. So, so because it's, you know, they don't tend to be, you know, if you sell to uh, your employees instead of selling to a competitor, there's, uh, you know, no drive for synergies between, uh, um, you know, different branches uh, of this newly merged company. Um, uh, so jobs tend to stay, uh, in local communities and, you know, it's also a, a really great a succession option, right? Right. So we have this issue that has been talked about for a long time. This, they call this the silver tsunami, this, this idea that there's going to be a bunch of, uh, older, uh, folks, uh, retiring, wanting to sell their companies, employee ownership provides, you know, a great option for that, uh, that does all of those things, uh, discussed before that, you know, other approaches, you know, selling to a financial buyer who you know won't know anything about the the either the company or the location of the company, um, you know, or selling to a competitor, not, they don't provide any of those benefits, and and of course come with uh, challenges around concentration of capital, monopoly, etc. As you you described, right? And I mean, it's it's fascinating to me because you know one of the sort of orthodox defenses of the free market is that well, it's you know it's driven by incentives. And yet, we find all the time the incentives seem to be to tear these companies apart and to undo years of labor and 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 uh, this, these things that people have built. Whereas, you know, plainly the incentives for employees under this model is, is to make these things work and, and to invest in their communities. Right? I mean, it's funny that when we think of the capital market, we often don't think of local incentives. We sort of think, these are these abstract things for shareholders that are God knows where. But I'm curious about how the process works because, you know, you talk about de-risking investment. Your your organization talks about de-risking investment. Yeah. Uh, the, the fact is that that there's risk involved in this. There is some you know, often significant amounts of capital involved in this. Mm-hmm. It isn't some. The market isn't inherently friendly to facilitating this model. Probably that's incidentally, I'm sure why why you folks exist. <laughs> Can you walk us through the process and 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 I don't want to call it a niche, but let's say the the space that you fill in in the market. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the process of selling to your employees, you know, in the U.S. Um, uh, is you know it, it's kind of like um, a leverage buyout by employees. So I don't, I don't know if your listeners will be familiar by a lever- with a leverage buyout, but what a leverage buyout is, is I'm going to use a, a ton of debt to uh, buy a company and then I'll pay down that debt over time with the cash flow from that company. And so in, in employee ownership transition, what, what uh, an owner does is normally they'll, they'll borrow, borrow some money uh, at fair market value to, to sell their company to this trust that's been created, trust that owns the shares and, and, the, and the money will come either from a commercial bank. So just, you know, regular, whatever, Bank of America, JP Morgan, um, and the rest of the money will come from the owner. 
and, and, and normally that's most of the money, at least in, in the current uh, approach, uh, comes from the owner, which is one of the main disincentives for this to happen, right? Um, but anyway, we'll get back to that. So now you have this trust that's been created that owns 100% of the shares of the company. Um, but, the, but the shares are, are, are at, at, you know, when the company is originally transferred are worth nothing, right? Because let's say the company was worth $100 million. Uh, the company would, or the trust would borrow $100 million to buy the company. So it's got $100 million, it's worth $100 million, it's got $100 million in debt, shares are worth zero. Then over time, as the company uh, um, has cash flow, it pays down that debt, the share price goes up, and now the employees are benefiting from the increase in share price. The share prices are allocated to employees over time, so they don't all go to the employees that are there when they start. These are it's actually quite a wonderful structure that uh, allocates uh, uh, shares over what's usually decades. So an employee that starts 20 years from now is still going to benefit from this. Um, and then when an employee leaves the company, they get paid for their shares, right, through for, you know, from the company itself. So, so the owner is going to get paid back over what is a long period of time. And that's, and this is sort of where, where, where the market challenge comes in. And just, you know, as an example, one uh, employee, you know, other than Taylor, uh, so Publix, the uh, grocery chain in um, uh, Florida, I think is one of the top 50 employers, uh, privately owned employers, I think in the world, 200,000 employees. It has been majority uh, um, uh, ESOP owned, so employee owned for, you know, 40 or 50 years. And through that process created many millionaires, uh, you know, who were just sort of frontline workers, grocery clerks, etc. Hmm. Um, so the market challenge is, and this is this comes back to, you know, when you describe the free market. I mean, the free market is in many ways, um, when it comes to the financial system, a silly way to describe what happens, right? I mean, the, mar the market is, is very geared towards certain outcomes. And an example of that is, the amount of capital available for employee ownership transitions. Right. We know uh, through lots of, of experience that employee-owned companies are much lower risk than non-employee-owned companies. Right. This there's an entire institute at Rutgers University that studies this stuff. These are these are the results, and there's you know kind of anecdotal evidence as well. Since 2015, I mean, so grocery happens to be a place where there's lots of employee-owned companies. Um, since 2015, there'd been, I think, uh, 12 bankruptcies of larger grocers in the U.S. 11 of them were private equity owned. The other one was a failed acquisition by Kroger, and none of them were uh, employee owned groceries, grocers, despite the fact that there are a lot of those. So, you know, we know these are lower risk. However, they attract less capital. Mm -hmm. And the, re the, the, the cause of that, I wouldn't say the reason, because it's not a good reason, but the cause of that um, um, is there isn't, there aren't institutions, there aren't sort of intermediaries that have incentives to uh, um, organize that capital for uh, employee-owned company uh, transitions, right? So, so if, I, if I'm a, let's say, I, let's say so, so the bank will provide whatever debt they provide, that'll be fine. But normally, and there's a next level of debt that will come from other debt funds, right? So, so like a mezzanine fund. We're getting into a bit of technical stuff here, which, which you know, I don't know how much the audience will enjoy or care about. But there's sort of secondary lenders that provide more debt than a bank will provide, and those lenders will generally follow private equity companies because you know they have built-in relationships with those private equity companies. There's an assumption that those private equity companies uh, are good at managing. 
despite lots of evidence that they're average and managing. But anyway, uh, um, uh, and so there's more debt available. But for an employee-owned company, the person who owns the rest of the share or, or you know, who owns the rest of the debt is the owner. And the owner has none of those established relationships uh, and, uh, um, and, and can't sponsor the deal themselves. So that's where we come in. So we say this makes no sense, right? Our objective is to broaden ownership in the economy. We are really worried about uh, the, the rapid increase in, in uh, concentration of ownership, in rapid increase in wealth inequality. How do you, you know, what are the ways in which we could start to attack that? One of them is employee ownership. So we say, look, these are low risk. We'll be the sponsor. We'll figure out how to manage all this stuff in the middle. And we'll find funders who will provide debt to these uh, um, employer companies because they're lower risk and we can make that clear. So I'll, I'll just end with an example. So the Taylor Guitars deal. So we, we uh, um, uh, organize the financing for Taylor Guitars transition to employee ownership uh, uh, back at the end of 2020. And we partnered with the pension plan, which is a hundred billion dollar, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, Toronto based pension plan to finance that deal. Um, it's the first time a pension plan has ever financed an employee ownership deal, but they loved it. I mean, they saw it as low risk once we, once we, you know, uh, got into the conversation, they understood the owners, they understood the deal, they, they saw it as low risk, great return for their members with a wonderful outcome as well, right? Because they are now, you know, they're the stewards of the wealth of the 99% in effect, right? Mm -hmm. So they're not, you know, they, they don't, their pension fund isn't for doctors, it's for sort of, you know, uh, receptionists and administrators, you know, and so, and so not administrators, like sort of lower paid hospital workers um, are now, are now uh, financing the transition of companies to, uh, you know, what is mostly manufacturing employees. It's got a wonderful uh, sort of story to it as well. So when we talk about ethical investment, I mean, this is one of those incidents of, of such a thing, right? Well, yeah. I mean, listen, uh, um, in, in th that sort of sustainable ethical investing, almost all of that is is in um, environmental uh, issues, yeah, which is yeah. great. I mean, we obviously we need to be doing that. It's really hard to find investments that lead to social outcomes. Really hard. Mm -hmm. And this one is not only a great social outcome, but it's easily measurable, right? So every year at every one of these employee-owned companies, they measure how much wealth has been created. It's like a simple metric, right? So, so, so this, this uh, um, Taylor Guitars deal is going to create tens of millions of dollars of, you know, identifiable wealth for, you know, lower middle-class workers. And, and you don't need to search for it. You don't need to invent new metrics. You don't need to come up with a whole new accounting system. You've just done it. And presumably it'll, it'll, it's also better, safer for pensions and so on and so forth. I mean, one of the, uh, of, I mean, there's lots of things that drive me absolutely bananas about the market. Uh, it's the reason I, <laughs> I'm a social, one of the many reasons I'm a socialist. Uh, the, the watching large corporations go out of business and folks lose their pensions is among the, the, the most infuriating things I've ever seen. So, you know, presumably this sort of model also helps protect people's pensions and ensures they're not left in the lurch uh, long term, right? Yeah, well, well so, so um, you mean uh, the, the investing in these types of things? Uh, I, I mean, like the, the wealth that is created. Oh, for sure. 100%. So, so in, in the U.S., these actually are, it is a retirement plan. Right. 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 So, so it's, you know, usually it'll be in addition 
to a, a retirement plan that, that those those uh, um, uh, folks already have at employee-owned companies. So, so yes, I mean, it's designed specifically to provide retirement income uh, uh, for the employees of the company. And so what's the ultimate goal of, of the model? So to have employee-owned businesses, uh, that, you know, that's the immediate goal. What's, when we're looking ahead at these enterprises as part of the market system, what's the goal? Is it that they become the majority, that they become the norm, um, that they balance out other forms of ownership, whether it be private equity or, or even state ownership? What's the, what's the long-term vision? Not just from, from your, organ- yeah, from yeah, yeah. your organization, but uh, in general with the philosophy of, of employee ownership. Look, I would say it's one of many, many things we need to do um, in order to start to rebalance the economy away from, you know, monopoly and financial ownership. Um, it, in and of itself, I mean, it will be part of the answer, but there's a, there's a limit likely to, to how much it can grow. Um, it requires, you know, certain circumstances to be right, but, but certainly the objective. So, so, so we believe that for most companies, uh, you know, like most successful companies looking to transition, they ought to at least look at employee ownership as an option. Right. right? right. It's not always going to be the, the right option, but and, and that is simply not the case today. Part of the reason that's not the case is this lack of financing available to owners, causing them to make far too much of a sacrifice um, in order to uh, um, uh, do employee ownership in the U.S., right? So the U.S. has some pretty good tax advantages for selling to employees, but they're not enough to balance out the fact that empl- that uh, um, sellers get almost no money up front in, in, in current deals. Right. So, so I think, you know, the objective is if we can bring uh, um, institutional capital, so institutional capital, which is effectively the money that currently goes to financial ownership and, you know, monopoly, uh, um, if some of that can be redirected to uh, uh, supporting and financing employee ownership, uh, that will uh, um, cause owners like owners in the system today looking to sell to choose employee ownership where they otherwise would not. Is it really, you know, that that's fascinating to me. That seems like a crucial point that might often uh, fly under the radar for many folks that, you know, people sort of assume that, well, the market operates the way it operates because that's the best way. And, and I'm getting the sense here that actually there is a better way, but it's it's more difficult and therefore people ignore it or or don't pursue it. But it's it seems to me that if it were more accessible, this would be a preferred approach. Yeah, for lots of people, it will be. So, so, so we we talk about like the the community oriented, thoughtful owner who founded a company, cares deeply about it, goes to their advisor and says, "Well, I'm looking to sell," and they say, "No problem. Let me get the M and A guy on the phone, and we'll set you up with a process to sell the private equity." Right? And um, uh, you know, we want that advisor to say, "Well, you know, there's also another option that that, that you should think about." Um, you know, which, which, which doesn't happen today, but you know, there's, there's lots of, I think, I think when people talk about the market, I don't actually understand people who are thoughtful about this stuff, um, shouldn't talk about the market as like this thing that exists outside of the human beings Mm -hmm. that exist in the market. And and here's an example, right? So, 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 so one of the things we need to overcome is that an advisor to, um, a company, you know, will we? You know, we want them to say there's a couple of options for sale. One of them's employee ownership. The problem for them, this human being looking to sell this company, 
um, on behalf of, of, of this owner is that if they sell to employee ownership, that becomes employee ownership probably for a very long time, right? right? So, you know, if they sell to private equity, that private equity company is going to want to resell the company in five years. Mm-hmm. And who, who are they going to go to? They're going to go back to the same agent that helped them before. It's like real estate, right? So, so you know, um, these weird incentives. That, I'll give you another example. I was talking to a, a pension fund uh, um, about employee ownership, and you know, I said, "Hey, you can, you can, um, you, you know, here's what we did. This is why Healthcare Ontario Pension Fund did it. It's a wonderful thing." He said, "You know, but what about headline risk?" And I said, "What do you, what do you mean?" And he said, "Well, you know, what if what if something goes bad?" Um, and you know, I have to go and, and, you know, take the company back from employees because the, because the, the debt went bad. I, you know, I don't want to do that. I said, well, y- you know, okay, but, but, but it's, it's much less common for that to happen in this case versus a private equity. Uh, and, and, and he said, yeah, but with private equity, you know, I don't have to go and do that. Right. Right. So, so, so even though I know that the odds of the company going more bankrupt, going going bankrupt, are higher if if it if it uh, gets bought by private equity. At least it's not me, right, being the one that has to go and fire everybody. Right. So so there's there's all these kind of individual incentives that that tilt the market in different directions. That has you know so it's not it's not it isn't just a free market operating you know where where capital searches its best use. It seems it seems inherent to the model then that that's always going to be one of the risks, right? Yeah, I mean, but some people are more thoughtful about it. You know, you know yeah, I'm right. talking about you know, what, you know a couple of examples I and mean, the kinds of things that we're up against. Some people are more thoughtful about it. As we continue to do these deals, we'll move into more of a fund structure, which will be much easier for people to invest in, much easier for people to copy. Right? Our objective is is for other people, like for you know, for us to show the way so that many many other funds come into the market. And then it's much easier to do these transactions. But I guess I'm using that as an example to say, um, you know, the broader question of of how do we uh, create a more equal or create more equal outcomes in the economy means confronting the weird incentives that exist inside, uh, um, you know, and and you know, the, the causes of those things, like how we think about taxes and, uh, you know, we have to confront all of those things, uh, um, you know, as part of a bigger picture. Employee ownership fits in there, but obviously it's just one small part. Right. And, and I mean, I, I, I was interested in this because I'm a, a market socialist, which often puts me at odds with both capitalists and with socialists who, uh, who don't particularly always uh, love my approach, certainly with, with communists who, who reject it altogether. And it's largely, market socialism is a little bit complicated, but, but largely, strictly speaking, it's a sort of uh, market system in which ownership is dispersed among workers and the state, and that the, the benefits of that are returned to workers and the public at large. So there's still a market system, which I actually support because I am nervous about power accruing too much in any one place, whether it be the market or the state. Uh, I want to see that dispersed. I think that's a good balance. And I do think markets can work and do work in a lot of ways, but they need to be seriously constrained. And this strikes me as one of the ways in which that can happen. But I'm curious about how you would model uh, you know economic democracy within this uh, 
because you talk about employee-owned businesses as a trust, but there's also a sort of more direct democratic model of employee ownership and management. And I'm wondering, do, do you work on models that include, you know, uh, employee democracy or is it mostly the trust model? So, so the issue that we're trying to solve with this uh, approach is the sort of, you know, 40% of workers that work for a traditional company of that size in the private markets and how are they going to transition? Right. And so if you approach that segment and said, you know, the answer we're going to bring to you is uh, sort of worker cooperatives, uh, you'd have you'd have two major problems. One is that would be a, a really hard transition for many of these companies who have been used to kind of more hierarchical or at least traditional management. And the second, you'd have trouble finding financing, right? Right. So, 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 so we look, you know, we are big fans of co-ops. Uh, we're big fans of worker co-ops. We, we, we think that they are absolutely part of the broader answer. It's where you apply them that I think is the question. And, and for us, there's, a, there's sort of a question of scale, right? So we see a path to this uh, um, approach to funding employee ownership uh, uh, transitioning billions of dollars of institutional capital from kind of their current approach to employee ownership, which will broaden wealth, but won't won't uh, uh, dramatically increase uh, worker democracy. But there, we don't see a scalable path, at least in in North America, to to scaling uh, worker democracy, at least through that segment of the economy. Even though we're supportive in other things that we do. Right. And is that a matter of, of what we sort of talked about earlier, that it, it that as a model is much easier to pursue for, for new enterprises than transitioning existing ones? Yeah, like, like smaller companies, it, it can work out. So Canada has something like 400 worker cooperatives. I think the number is not that dissimilar in the U.S., despite it being a lot bigger. Um, they tend to be kind of 5 to 20 employees. Not, not always, but but they tend to be 5 to 20 employees. Um, and, and yes, I think they, they tend to... You know, there's a new there's new models though, right? That have the potential to scale, uh, but but generally you'd want to start them. So, so you know, one example is uh, platform cooperatives, which is the idea that um, you know a uh, uh, um, uh, like like, a, like a, an Uber, for example, should be owned by its drivers. And, and there's there's a there's been a, a new company in uh, New York founded, uh, you know specifically on that model uh, it's sort of a, an uber uh, owned by the drivers uh, um, in new york now that a lot of those platforms are publicly owned they they there's only there's a limit to how much they can continue to subsidize their massively money losing models uh, which which provides an opening potentially for uh, platform cooperatives where where there wasn't one when it was subsidized by venture capitalists right so so um so that's that's a, that's so so there are models that are potentially scalable, you know. Stocksy is an example of a uh, um, I think a, a cooperative model for photographers. So there, there's interesting stuff uh, um, that that you know that, that we're supportive of, but that there's just what, I think what we need. So so to answer kind of the the, the broader question, I think you, we need ways for each different type of company to. Uh, um, uh, uh, transition to more broader ownership and more uh, um, equitable outcomes. Right. And, and you know, uh, for this particular segment, 
Uh, employee ownership trusts are a wonderful way to do it, succeeding very well in the UK as well with a similar, you know, the somewhat similar structure. Um, then there needs to be other answers for the other types of companies. I want to close out in the last several minutes uh, by digging into the projects that, that social capital partners have worked on and, and might be looking at for the future. You, you, we've talked a little bit about it with with Taylor Guitars. I wonder if you could talk about some of the projects that, that you're working on or, or, or plan to work on that have taught you about the free market and about, and about different ways of doing business. I mean, does anything stand out as, as providing lessons that we might expand on to the broader market or expand on to different ways of doing business? Is there something that stands out as, as particularly illustrative of new ways of doing things that, that folks might not be aware of? Well, well, let me, let me say, uh, um, first on, on the question of, of what we're working. So we're doing this thing in the U S we are also trying to bring employee ownership to Canada. Your Canadian audience should know that these trusts are not doable in Canada. Uh, we, we don't, we don't have a public policy uh, structure. Um, uh, you know, we don't have a trust structure that, that, um, either incentivizes or, or creates like a, you know, a kind of a, um, you know, a, a specific structure to, to make this happen in Canada, in the UK. They, so in the U S they brought it in 1974 in the UK, they brought it in, in 2014. Uh, so quite recently, uh, the UK model has gone gangbusters, uh, uh, you know, something like 500, Companies have transitioned to employee ownership trusts just in the last you know, five or six years in the UK. We have been campaigning for a Canadian answer to this, uh, uh, you know, for the last, whatever, nine or 10 months. Um, and in the, the 2021 budget, uh, the uh, you know, fe- federal budget, there was a mention of employee ownership trusts. We, we think partially, certainly because of our advocacy. Um, um, so we're super excited about that. So, so the mention says... Canadian government acknowledges that these things have been super successful in the U.S. and the U.K. We need to understand, or you know, we are going to understand what the barriers are to this in Canada. And our our recommendation, you know, will continue to be: we need a specific employee ownership trust structure in Canada to be uh, um, entered into tax law. We need incentives um, uh, similar to the U.S. and the U.K. And then, and then we'll need to ensure that um, uh, you know they're regulated in a way that. Uh, uh, you know, where, where there's, a, there's, a, there's a good outcome from it. And, and, and the key things about employee ownership, I should, I should just mention uh, while we're on this, is that uh, um, employees don't pay for their shares. Right. And uh, shares go to all employees. Those two things are super important, right? Because in, in a lot of other uh, um, ownership structures where there is some employee ownership, employees do have to pay for their shares, uh, uh, reducing their accessibility. They don't go to all employees. Again, uh, uh, you know, kind of maintaining a certain level of inequalities. So that's a massive uh, part of our effort right now. Um, and then, uh, you know, but, but we, you know, we're trying to focus on ownership more broadly. You ask about uh, different approaches um, that, you know, um, reveal something about how, um, you know, the economy could work better. You know, I, I, so one example that we think about is, um, you know, as, is, you know, when we think about ownership succession, one of the things that exists today is something called search funds. Okay. And what a search fund is, it's usually a guy. So a man, uh, usually a white man, um, who went to usually Harvard or Stanford, um, who has been a consultant or an investment banker. And they say to, you know, that person will say to their, you know, 
wealthy, generally white uh, um, uh, friends or, or you know, mentors, uh, you, I want you to fund me. I'm going to go find a business to buy, right? And then, and then you get a great return if I'm successful in buying this business. And that's the so. There's a lot of these guys out there at, um, trying to buy businesses all over the place, uh, um, and and that's pretty much the only you know one of the only models of succession for smaller companies. Um, uh, you know that is continuing to keep the economy owned by a certain group, right? So my group, so white guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, so so we think about okay, what what is another way to do that? I mean, can we come up with uh, and try to find a way to fund a new type of search fund that's inclusive, that, that tries to fund women, that tries to fund uh, um, you know people of color, tries to fund uh, um, yeah, indigenous people so, so that they can become owners of the economy funded in, in a similar way? Is there a way to fund uh, uh, people from within industries to buy out the owners of the companies that they work for? So that's that's part of it. There's also, and this is something I'm familiar with based on what I did before Social Capital Partners, but, you know, if you think about all of, you know, the, there's a lot of talk about the care economy right now. So, so uh, um, you know, and if you expand the care economy, there's sort of the professional economy, it effectively services uh, uh, from people to people. So so that includes, you know, dentists and, and doctors and, you know, veterinarians and, and, you know, massage therapists and all of the other folks in the care economy. The care economy has in the last, you know, so all of those things I just mentioned has become predominantly female, right? Uh, um, you know, over the last 20 years, some have been for a little longer than that, but certainly over the last 20 years have become predominantly female. Those industries have attracted a lot of private equity money uh, in terms of roll-ups, right? So I, like I'm going to, someone says, I'm going to go buy all of the dental practice or I'm going to go buy all the veteran practice. So, so in some of these areas, you had... Uh, um, uh, uh, industries that used to be owned by men uh, because there were only men who did those jobs. A lot of them have shifted to women, uh, but ownership has shifted from men to other men, but just different types of men. So, so men now who work on Wall Street or Bay Street. Uh, um, and so, you know, we think about, you know, and, and that's uh, um, encouraged by the financial system. So, so in, in, in one of my favorite examples of, of, of how the economy actually works, is you know uh, um, uh, if you're a, a, a dentist and you want to buy your practice that you've been working at for 20 years, you go into the bank and you say, "Hey, you know, I want to buy this practice," and they say, "Oh, great! You know, we've been lending to dentists for you know 100 years, and what we do is we take the cash flow of your of your dental practices and we give you call it four times that cash flow, and you go and buy your dentist because that's the price for dental practices." And what's happened in the last 10 years because of the influx of money into private equity, the incredibly low interest rates, the quantitative easing, um, there's just been that much more money interested in stuff like dental practices. So now if I'm a private equity company, I go into the same bank, but a different department. And I say, I'd like to buy more dental practices. And they say, well, great. You're a private equity company. We'll give you six and a half times cash flow for any dental practice you want to buy. So now the dental practice can no longer buy the business they've been working in for 20 years because the private equity guy is going to pay more. Right. The irony of all of that is that the odds of failure of that business are way higher in the hands of the private equity company 
who could have, you know, in a structural, you know, they're so leveraged and any structural challenge could just go under. A dental, a dentist themselves almost never goes under. So you've got this concept of, of sort of capital finding its best use that's laughable mm -hmm. in that context because the best use of that capital is absolutely the dentist and not the private equity company in terms of risk and return for the bank. So, you know, you, so we think about, okay, well, should there be a different approach for funding of professional women, women in the care economy in order for them to own the businesses that they work out of the businesses they start up in order to compete in that, in that, in that world. So, so, you know, I, I'm not sure if I, I'm kind of rambling a bit here, but, but, but these are just, these are examples that we see of opportunities to shift, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, how the economy actually works to a, a fairer uh, um, uh, system, um, you know, that, that doesn't preference consolidated capital. That makes good sense. And I mean, again, it speaks to sort of the structural assumptions we make that are contrary uh, to reality, but that get baked into this sort of market orthodoxy. And I'm, I'm certainly glad uh, that, that you took us through that. I want to very quickly finish on the, the Canada question. Do you expect this model is going to come to Canada sometime soon? I mean, you've mentioned that it's being discussed there. It's being considered. Uh, it strikes me that it would be very Canadian for us to adopt it totally. after it's been proven in the United States and the UK. <laughs> uh, so yes. it's it very much us. Uh, do you think it's something we'll see in the next five years? Look, there's no good reason not to, right? I mean, once it was introduced in, in, in the UK, it, it happened relatively quickly. Um, we've seen super, you see tons of interest, right? So, so the wonderful thing about these is, is there's no partisan side to it. Right. So in the U.S., employee ownership, Republicans love it. Democrats love it. In the U.K., there's sort of four, you know, four, there are four major parties all have employee ownership on their agenda. Mm -hmm. There's no reason that the Conservative Party of Canada shouldn't love employee ownership. And there's no reason the New Democratic Party shouldn't love employee ownership. It, it, it has something for everybody because it's just good public policy that succeeded. So there's no good reason not to. I, I you know, I have no way to predict uh, uh, whether it'll happen, we certainly are are, are aiming to to uh, uh, you know for the next couple of years to get it in place. I mean, if you if you're serious about wanting a more resilient economy, if you're serious about this, you know, build back better, whatever you want to call it, where where a new version of the economy uh, um, has incentives, uh, you know, that lead to uh, um, you know a more equitable distribution of the economy, uh, um, you know, the better for workers, uh, then you, you can't ignore this, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's almost the preeminent example of how public policy can drive significant change in the private sector without having to do it actively. Right. So, so, you know, it, it obviously I'm biased, but, but, it, but it feels like if you're serious about, about shifting how the economy works, It'd be awfully hard to ignore the success of uh, of employee ownership. Well, I think that's a fantastic point to end on. I absolutely agree, and I know that there are listeners who are actively involved in political parties and politics in this country and in the public service. 
and I'll just say to them, this is a absolute winner of an idea. I look forward to seeing it on party agendas in the 2021 election. Yeah, yeah. Listen, which... <laughs> people are building their, their platforms. Yeah. You know, give me a call. Let's yes. talk about it. You, you really ought to. It, we know the election is coming. We know it can't be avoided. We're locked in. But by God, this had better be on the agenda. And I'll just leave it there. So I'll leave it there with my thanks to you, John, for joining me here today. Thank you, David. It's a lot of fun. And as always, my thanks to the folks who make this podcast not just possible, but far better than it would otherwise be. Mira Ahmad, Aaron Reynolds, and Carolyn Smith. So thanks once more to John, to everyone who makes the podcast possible and great, and to all of our listeners. We'll see you again here in a couple weeks for our 50th episode. We've done 50 of these, and thank you for being here uh, with me for so many of them. And then we're going to take a little summer break and be back in September for what everyone assumes is going to be the 44th general election. We'll see you then. Hey, I'm Jody Butts, host of At Risk, a podcast show on the 2020 Network that seeks to help us better protect the things we care most about during these dynamic and challenging times. At Risk is about better understanding the role of risk in our everyday lives and how best to manage it. I speak with interesting Canadians like astronaut Colonel Chris Hadfield, Olympian Haley Wickenheiser, entrepreneur Tarek Haddad, and Canada's 18th Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Brian Mulroney. Do you really care about something if you're not thinking about how you could lose it? You can find At Risk on your favourite podcast app or on the 2020 Network. Thanks for listening.